Hello. This episode of the Future Nature's podcast is a conversation with Andy Thatcher about ghost stories, folk horror, and the strange and contested histories of English commons. Andy is a photographer, filmmaker, writer, and researcher who's currently pursuing a PhD at the University of Bristol. Andy's research includes using folk horror as a lens to understand the stories and atmospheres of English commons. In our conversation, we talked about histories and folk legends linked to commons in the southwest of England, and how Andy uses research and filmmaking to explore and appreciate them. Folk traditions have long been ways for local people to assert claims to the land. Though many historic English commons are obscure and little known, they can reveal histories of conflict and trauma. And as such, just a content warning, this podcast includes a discussion of violence in a historical context, which some listeners may find upsetting. Our conversation touched on ideas about how the weird, the eerie and haunting can help us think differently about places. And we discussed how folk horror of the 1970s and beyond can open up deep histories, clashes between tradition and modernity, and moral ambiguity. If you're interested in these themes, check out our season on Strange Natures. It's a chance to explore responses to nature and crisis through the lens of the strange. Over the next few weeks, we'll be publishing a series of artworks essays and stories on this theme at futurenatures.org. First of all, thank you for coming on the podcast and talking to us. That's a pleasure. Um, Andy, you've been investigating English commons and what makes them different and exploring some of the histories involved mm. and finding, you know, sometimes a bit strange and obscure kind of histories involved in these commons and the way you've been investigating them is partly through um, photography and making films I wonder if you can tell us a bit about what your what your interest comes from and and, and where you started with it okay so I'll go back to when I did my master's in film and tv um, so I did my dissertation in I think it was 2019 and I'd heard that a local green space had been registered as a town green to protect it from being developed by the council. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's just a, a large public green space, which is about, about a 20 minute walk from where I live. So I got to know the community who saved it and the process through which they had it registered as a town green, which is a kind of a common, it's kind of an amenity space where local people have got rights to access it that the owners can't mess around with. So building a link road through it would completely change the character. It also changed the way that it was used. I'd been interested in plays through my photography, through my filmmaking already. And I thought this sounded like a really rich and interesting subject. Um, so looking at town greens, looking at village greens, because I grew up in a, in, a, in a village in Kent, which has got a village green and some of my earliest memories are of this. So I, you know, I started that that was my dissertation film. It's it was a very rich subject. I visited lots of greens in, in London as well. I visited the, the village green at uh, Babacombe Model Village 
uh, in uh, in Devon, which was fantastic. And then sort of realised that that you know that, that connected with this was the idea of common land, but this was just going to be too big a subject to include within this. Um, but possibly was something that I would continue to look at for a PhD, which I eventually did. But there's a, there's a history to this for for me, uh, apart from the fact that it's it's just an interesting subject, especially if you're interested in land and power. Um, because the town I grew up in, Tunbridge Wells in Kent, has got a large common in the middle of it. So I lived there from the ages from seven years old up to about 19, I guess. And it was somewhere where I went right the way through my childhood. And and my parents still live in Tunbridge Wells. So even now, we often will go and visit the common. And that's how we refer to it as the common. You know, we're going to the common. And I developed a very deep connection with this place, um, as everybody in Tommy Giles does, because it's a beautiful piece of woodland and playing fields, and it's, it's got ponds, and it's a very varied landscape, some beautiful old trees. I felt that whenever we went there, it was a, it was something that belonged to me personally. It was something that belonged to all of us. Wasn't really sure whether it was everyone in Tunbridge Wells or everyone in England, but there was this, I mean, it's there in the name, Common. Um, so it's placed somewhere that we have in common. And so, you know, I had, there were a lot of difficulties during my childhood as there often are, but this was a place where all that kind of fell away. Uh, and there was also a sense of entering kind of a uh, an older, less complicated way of life, um, less inhibited, less barriers. It's, uh, I mean, like, like all commons, Tomajos Common is unenclosed. So there's no fences like, like you'd find around a park. So you can just literally walk off the street into the common without anything getting in your way. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a very kind of distinct space. You don't feel that you're being given permission to go there. It's yours to take whenever you want it, as you might do with a park, because they often have opening times. Yeah, this this is something that you know my my relationship with place is is, is pretty deep. So I've you know I've suffered from uh, depression right the way through my life, um, and going to a place has always been a really important way for me to come to terms with my feelings and move beyond them and think things through. So when I was in my second year as an undergraduate up in uh, Upper Warwick, there was a a, a green space just opposite the Grand Union Canal from where I was living in Leamington Spa. And it was called Newbold Common Park. And I just assumed that it was a former common. Um, and so whenever I'd go there, I'd sort of feel that I, you know, I was kind of getting back to this old way of life and that I was free of all the problems and all this kind of thing. Um, when I researched it latterly, I found out that actually Newbold Common Park is takes its name from a local landowner the commons who were Normans so nothing to the commons at all but just the ideas and just the name was enough to really you know it was it was something that I benefited from enormously then moved to London near to the Epping Forest that was somewhere where we went to a lot Hampstead Heath as well was a very short train ride away from where, where we lived in Leighton moved, then moved to Cornwall didn't know any commons there but there were some and then when we moved to Exeter where we still are 15 years ago um, there's a huge area of common land, about a 20 minute drive called the Pebble Bed Heaths, which became a really important landscape for us as a family, somewhere we'd visit time and time again. And then, of course, we've got Dartmoor, which is just a half hour drive away, vast area of common land. So it's it's something that is sort of, you know, that's, it's been part of my personal life, um, which is why looking at it as a PhD, it's important for me to bring in this personal aspect of what 
these places mean to me. Um, even though as I gradually explored what commons are in their history, started to realize that actually a lot of the things that I believe weren't true or had sort of become true rather more recently than I thought. So yeah, that that is, oh, and, and I was born on former common land. So I was born in Farnborough Hospital, which was originally Farnborough Workhouse. A lot of uh, municipal buildings like prisons, workhouses, hospitals are built on former common land. And Farnborough Hospital's street address is still Farnborough Common. And there are little bits of Farnborough Common which still are around it. So you could actually say I was born on a common. I like to say that anyway. <laughs> That's great. I mean, there's so much, there's so much in there and and there's there's such a kind of personal connection with it. Uh, I think nowadays you're engaged in uh, like exploring these commons with a kind of academic interest, yep. but also bringing some of your connection, your personal connections to these places, and kind of trying to explore the atmospheres and the emotions and the uh, the, the feelings that they evoke in people. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are a couple of commons uh, that you talked to me about before, um, or a couple of places that were associated with common land. And I just wondered if you could talk about sort of what you encountered there and kind of how you go into those spaces. And then what do you what do, what do you do when you go into them? How do you explore those stories uh, and those those histories that you find there? OK, so the first thing is I've become a complete geek about these places. Um, there, if there is an award for the most number of commons visited, it's something which I would like to make a lifetime's ambition of gaining. Because um, basically, there's a uh, there's an online DEFRA map which, if you know how to put the settings on, means that you can find common land anywhere. Um, and a lot of these places are incredibly obscure and incredibly small, so you won't find them on a map. But you'll only, I mean, there's a there's like there's a, a village pump in Somerset. And it is just the pump that's common. And the only way you can find it is because if you zoom in on it, there's this tiny little blue dot. Oh, I've been doing that. Um, right. we, can so, add, so... we can add a link to the uh, show notes ah. so people can have a go with it. So it sounds yeah, great. it's brilliant. It's it's great fun. I mean, it's not, I mean, and this is the other thing is that it's not entirely complete because it's only commons that are registered under the 1965 Act. Um and which are also open access land. And a lot aren't. So so the New Forest isn't that, um, even though the New Forest is sort of one of the most complete areas of common land in the country. Um, and Tunbridge Wells Common isn't either, because it's not registered under the 1965 Act. It's registered under a, the 1925 Act. So, it, you know, the, and the only place that you can actually find out where all the commons are is going to a county's archives. Because that will that they they carry a complete list. Some councils are nice enough to put these online, but most aren't. So anyway, but I use the DEFRA map and also just hearing about these places and deciding I'm going to go and visit them. And so what I will do is I'll then um, um, there's a there's a there's a very out of date site called commonland.org. It just sort of tells you the size of the place. It tells you whether there are still rights of common there, what they are. So not very much. And then there's another website, which I can't remember what it stands for, A-C-R-A-E-W, um, where there's loads of commons registration documents online. Sometimes there's a lot of them. And there's also documents for commons which didn't get registered. Sometimes there's nothing. 
and these aren't registered alphabetically so you've really got to do some searching through them but you get a hint of some of the stories behind these places through them um so there's a there's a common pond just outside Bristol where there's vast amounts of documentation because there'd been a huge argument over whether or not the pond was common based on the what was it pipes which supplied water to a bungalow um and you know this went on for years and years and years the council trying to register this and the person who owned the bungalow saying no because we use that water um it you know you, you get things from really you know from something really really trivial like that to major historic events so it's it's full of really rich detail so i'll do that i'll do a few web searches see if i can find more information um obviously if it's a major site there's loads um, like greenham common or runnymede for example loads of sort of cultural information as well i visited castle morton where the 1991 castle morton rave was i think it was 91 or 92 that brought about the criminal justice act um uh, commons are mentioned specifically in the criminal justice act because of the castle morton rave so i do i do like that but when i visit a place i like to park all of that and just experience it just as a place that i can engage with aesthetically effectively as well um but with all of that sitting there in the background right so it, it, you've made some films based on like your experiences in some of these places right so you mm. made a place a film about a place called grovely wood yeah and uh, another one uh pebble bed heaths i think pebble bed heaths yeah hartford common up in the pebble bed heaths right and it clearly sort of you know part of that is like documentary kind of exploring like what are the stories associated with this place mm. and part of it is you know some of these are like an anecdotal stories or legends some of them are like historically documented and part of it is just um taking in the atmosphere of the place itself like the, the atmosphere of the wood or mm. the atmosphere of the landscape um like it just strikes that's a, like an interesting combination of being able to tell a story and also show the the feeling of a place and the sound of a place as well mm. yeah and that's that's something which i think film can do really well um because uh especially through the use of voiceover you can impart information at the same time as the viewer can be looking at the thing that you're talking about um if you've got the written word um you can't do that because you've got the image and then you've got to do do the reading but with film you can combine everything that creates some issues as well so each you know each each medium has got its own strengths and its own weaknesses but i, th I think for exploring place is really good because certainly if you're doing long takes of of a particular place then you're really giving the the viewer the opportunity to kind of dwell in the landscape a bit for themselves and start to develop their own relationship with the place have you can we talk about grovely wood a mm, little sure. bit um just as a sort of example of like a story that you've looked into in a place that you've looked into like what did you find and kind of how did how did that come together so Grovely is a really strange shape uh because it's got fields in the middle of it so if you look at it on a on a map it looks a bit like a shark in the Wiltshire landscape um it's it's equidistant between Salisbury and Stonehenge I just decided that I one day I'd just go and visit because it sounded quite interesting um you can't it's very difficult to find information about it online uh the only website that promotes it is the Woodland Trust and that's because they've got a list of all publicly accessible wood in the country 
Um, and even they say very little about it at all. There's no maps or anything like that. There's no designated parking spaces. There's no roads that go across it. There's roads that go around it. Um, so I kind of had to work out where to park to go and visit it. And it is the most extraordinary place. You know, I, I visited in the in the early winter, which is a time I love to be in woodland because it's quite spooky. You've got the you, the leafless trees; they look like uh, skeletons. Um, you've got the uh, you know you've got you've got the, sort of the, the the sounds of the winter as well, so you don't have the bird song. Um, you've got wind, and yeah, it's uh, it's it's a good time of year to be out in the woods, and the smell, of course, which is something which doesn't translate into film, unfortunately. Uh, well, yet. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, I visited it and I, I liked the fact that I couldn't find out very much about it. And that if I walked around it, I would have to try and draw my own conclusions. Um, I knew that it had quite a few ancient sites in it. So it's got a Roman road that runs its length. I knew that, uh, it's, a, it's got Grimm's Ditch, which is a Bronze Age, um, they think it's probably was a boundary ditch, but they don't really know. Uh, so that runs its length as well. There's there's bits of ancient uh, settlements in there, and it's got some folk legends. And so these are bits that I'd found out beforehand. So one of the folk legends is that of the Hansel sisters, who were th four uh, Danish immigrants who were put to death for bringing smallpox to the village of uh, the town of Wilton right. in the 17th century. Um, so they were taken up to Gravely and murdered, and then. These ancient beaches grew up rapidly overnight on their graves, and three of the four are still there. And people hang what they call clooties from them, so ribbons or sometimes just bits of tat. I mean, you know, like USB sticks. And <laughs> like, there, was, there was like a uh, what was it? There was a um, there was a minion's key ring, and so so yeah, all all kinds of stuff and things that are sort of you know been crafted and uh, I've got kind of so it's like a local a local custom that people will just go into the wood and they'll hang things. Yeah, I mean, it's become they, they it's become more that. of a it's become more of a popular thing. Yeah. Um, there's lots of places where people seem to do that these days. Quite how long that's been a tradition there for, I don't really know. But it's become quite a thing in lots of places where it didn't used to be, yeah. um, which is ecologically questionable because a lot of the stuff is plastic based and it's you know it's not great for wildlife. But nevertheless, it's it's the sense that there's this kind of a folk tradition that even if it's a recent one. Um, so there's that. Uh, it, there's also Oak Apple Day, which is, uh, I, I still can't believe it's not not better known, um, but it's, uh, it's a folk tradition which has roots going back to at least the early 17th century, where commoners would declare their rights of common at Salisbury Cathedral by shouting, Grovely, 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 and all Grovely. Uh, this used to take place on at Whitson. Um, then after the Civil War, it was moved to Oak Apple Day, which used to be a national holiday, um, which was Charles II's birthday. So it's a celebration of the restoration of the monarchy. It's one of the few places in the country where it's still celebrated. Um, the... So people still do this. They go, still go to Salisbury mm. Cathedral and, yeah. and do this. Right. They do. It's really elaborate. I mean, basically, it starts at four in the morning on Oak Apple Day, which is 29th of May. And the members of the Oak Apple Club, which was set up in the 19th century, uh, rouse the villagers of Great Wishford by banging on pots and pans. And um, the idea is that everybody in the village gets up, goes up to Groveley Wood, collects oak boughs uh, with oak apples on them. 
um, which they decorate their homes. Then the largest oak bough is raised to the, the top of the spire of the village church, and it's supposed to confer good luck on anyone who gets married there. Great Wishford's got a lot more second homes than it used to, so there's a lot less people to do it. Mm. Um, but it is still happening. Um, you know, they had to obviously do a very abbreviated version over the COVID lockdown years. But it's it like a lot of these rituals, it's come and it's gone. It's acquired things along the way. Um, one of the sort of has its roots in like the the idea of common yeah. commoners asserting yeah. their rights. So, so this is, you know, so in, in a pre-literate society, rather than signing your name, it was something that you had to declare year after year. Yeah. Um, rather like uh, beating the bounds is a similar kind of idea. Um, so there are a few of these left. Uh, it's strongly believed that the uh, the cheese rolling in Gloucestershire at Cooper's Hill is another one of these because of the timing of it. Um, the cheese rolling is only actually part of the things which happened on Cooper's Hill that day. The thing that happens before the cheese rolling, which used to be part of it, which, which still is, is uh, sweets are sprinkled at the, at the top of the hill for children to collect. And it's right. it's supposed that this is pro it probably used to be corn or something like this that this was sort of a fertility thing um but this, so this is just part. to explain for people who haven't heard about the cheese rolling this yeah. is the, the <laughs> tradition of rolling a giant kind of wheel of cheese right down down the hill and people chase after it in a very dangerous fashion and it's it's sort of a well-known with in, in england at least it's a, a well travel from all over the world uh yes. La yeah. last year's winner had traveled from south korea right. specifically for this because it needs an unbelievably steep hill. And so it's yeah. really, really dangerous. And people always get injured and they try to stamp it out. But it right. just it well, that's interesting, though, because it's one of these things where, I mean, people know about it, but I mean, I've certainly never heard about or, or really thought about why they do it. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so if you dig into these, these traditions, sometimes you find, you know, there's quite sort of practical reasons why people hmm. do these things, even though they seem a bit strange and and uh yeah a bit bizarre so oak apple day is is one of these um but it's acquired the history of groveley as it's gone along um so in 1809 groveley was enclosed by its owner the, the duke of pembroke as as part of a huge enclosure act that enclosed the open fields and downland and meadows in this part of wiltshire but it was the it was the enclosure of Groveley Wood that people objected to. And so um, there were sort of continuing trespasses. And in 1825, four young women, the, 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 the name that's given is Grace Reed and her three friends. So I don't know who the three friends were and why Grace Reed is remembered. But there were four friends, um, one of which was Grace Reed, um, who were caught trespassing. They were just basically gathering wood. And this is all against the background of, of major a famine of soaring food prices across the country. So huge rural trauma, partly due to the Parliamentary Enclosure Act, partly due to other things that were going on as well. Um, so the loss of these places was felt incredibly acutely. It might make the difference between just about breaking even and becoming completely poverty stricken. Um, so they continue to use this wood. And so the, 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 the four, the four uh, young women went to collect um, firewood i think it was they were caught they were sent to salisbury prison and they were uh, there was public outcry and they were set free there was a lawyer who intervened 
Um, so this is documented. This is this is you know not not folk legend. This is something that, that really happened. Right. Um, and Grace Reed has been celebrated ever since locally. So she's mentioned in uh, Roger Deakins' book uh, Wildwood. She's mentioned in Shepherd's Life by Hudson, which is kind of one of the early bits of kind of nature writing from the I think it's the early twentieth century. And um, and there is a dance that's been incorporated into Oak Apple Day where you've got four women in period costume who uh, put bundles of sticks on their head and kind of dance around. Um, so that's been incorporated into it. Um, okay. And there was an ongoing battle to get the get the wood opened up for decades after that. Um, at some point, the banner, which says Grovely, 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 and all Grovely, underneath it was added unity as strength. So the early labor movement got involved there somehow. Um, so that's, and that's the point at which the Oak Apple Club was established. So there's presumably a socialist link there too. Mm. Um, so it's this real mishmash of all sorts of things. So you've got kind of this pagan element with the oak boughs, and then you've got you've got the civil war, then you've got the you know anti-enclosure protest, all sorts of things kind of combined to create this day. And it, it was like a lot of folk customs, it, it kind of declined at the end of the 19th century and then was revived in the 1950s. Right. Um and it's been and it's been sort of pretty much cons- every year since then. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was you know as soon as I found out that I was I was like yes, this is definitely the place to make a film about. Um, yeah. 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 And it's so I mean there's so many sort of layers of layers upon layers of stories and what's interesting is yeah these traditions and these kind of festivities they managed to incorporate all these different elements together and 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 mix them together and kind of interpret them in different ways and it's I mean this is something really 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 great about that um but yeah a lot of sadness as well and a lot of sort of violent history and and histories of struggles mm. um beneath the surface of something that you know you you might wander into a wood and think it's mm. it's beautiful or think it's sort of interesting but there's lots of sort of history going on there yeah um yeah you know and they're contested landscapes they they always are i mean all landscapes are but because commons are ancient landscapes, you can it, it's much more tangible. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so the, the the place that I'm making films about at the moment, or rather going through the the material which I which I amassed over the summer, um, it's got connections with slavery. It's got connections with the Prayer Book Rebellion, which was basically the end of Cornish independence in the nice. 16th century. And it's you know, and there's 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 it's it's something that's tangible there. Um, there's a um, a record that uh, that after the prayer book rebellion was put down, which is on the edge of Ex- uh, Exeter, that the um, uh, that the Cornish rebels then retreated to Woodbury Common, which is where they'd been the night before the, the the final battle, and that there was a rout there, and that the common was you know awash with blood. Whether or not that's true, I'm it, you know I don't really know, but it's it's a it's a great metaphor, and the idea that it sort of soaks into the land. And in yeah. some way, it's kind of still there, is is fascinating. I mean, this is you know, this is one of the the many sort of really fundamental, important moments in English history that so many people don't even know about. I mean, this has been one of the things that's been fascinating is I've, you know discovered that commons are such amazingly complicated places. The history is so incredibly complicated that I've actually I've had to 
get my head around English history in a way that I never have done before. So I've had to read books about the Civil War. Um, you know, I've had to read books about industrialization. I've had to read, uh, you know, up on the agricultural revolution of the of the the 18th to well, yeah, 18th to 19th centuries, or learned more about turnips than I ever thought I would learn in the course of a of a film PhD. Um, so it, you know, it it to really understand what it is that I'm making films about, I've really had to do this research um, because they're historic landscapes. And the reason that they have meaning, you know, to me and to many others is this connection with history. But the history is so much more complicated than, than these quite, you know, quite familiar narratives that I'd imbibed as a child. And, you know, many of us still do. Sure. Yeah. So once you start digging into the history, you find all these ambiguities and these 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 arguments and these kind yeah. of contestations as well. And I think it's really important to remember. I think especially as now, at the moment, there's this real re sort of revival. You might say there's a, a revival of interest in in commons mm. uh, and in people's desire to experience commons and to claim commons. Mm. Um, and there's there's kind of you know a lot of storytelling associated with that, which is the stories are being told for a reason, and sometimes they're they're simplified again for quite particular reasons. Um, and so, yeah, I think in your research, you know, you said to me before you've you've sort of found some interesting ambiguities or some some mm. some things that are kind of more complicated than than they first seem. Yeah. Um, so yeah i think yeah i think it's important to remember that these things that commons are not these fixed um, yeah. legal entities but are things that are kind of produced through through people's experiences and their actions and that just kind of changes over time and battles yeah. um and according and to need as well and according right. to technology and yeah. politics and population and yeah. i mean i i had the very good fortune of going to switzerland uh in august mm. for an international summer school run by the european society for environmental history there were there were scholars from india there were scholars from the states there were scholars from chile and colombia all over europe uh a couple from galicia 40 percent of galicia is common land it's just wow. absolutely astonishing and a lot of that has been recovered since uh since the end of the uh, since the end of fascism as well because they were destroyed for for like 150 years and you know one of the things that that um that, that there's desert commons on the india pakistan border where basically the common to be a commoner you've got to be part of a spiritual sect and it's kind of a religious practice um so you know, every country has got uh, a very different, well, you know, commons have grown up within a very different cultural context. Uh, in essence, they're, they're all the same kind of thing. This, this idea that, uh, it, that it's a resource which is either collecti collectively owned or, or there's collective responsibility for maintaining. And one of the things that was really clear, Switzerland has loads of commons, uh, two thirds of its alpine pastures and two-thirds of its woods are uh, commons mm. um which is you know for, for somewhere as uh 
you know, as, as the, you know, it's, it's easy to associate Switzerland with with being very, very organised and 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 with a bloated financial sector. Right. <laughs> and it doesn't, yeah. it, you know, that's that's, that's the stereotype, um, and it doesn't really fit very well with that. But actually, Commons have got a very Swiss history, um, which are very much connected with the fact that Switzerland was quite late to industrialise its relationship with the European countries around it because of the Alps. And the fact that it's uh, it's an incredible, you know, for its size, it's unbelievably diverse because it's got all these language groups, which is kind, which are semi-autonomous, which I didn't kind of realize. Yeah, so it was it was uh, yeah, it was it was really fascinating being there and seeing these places, um, and really getting a sense of of the Englishness of English commons. You know, through reflecting after having seen all these various commons, they have water commons there. These these kind of conduits which which take glacial water to vineyards they've got common vineyards in switzerland right. I mean, oh, I you know, had that wine that was you know that was, yeah common wine common wine yeah really really lovely stuff as well really good that's great um so that brings you back to then that helps you to then think about what's distinctive about about english commons and mm. as you were saying like you know some of these commons are kind of remnants or fragments if you like and 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 there are also places where, you know, there are commons without commoners. Yeah. Um, and so the then you sort of have to ask, well, what does that mean? Like, what you know, what is a common if there aren't any commoners? Mm. But then the 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 clues are more to do with the past. Yeah. That what makes it a commons is more to do with the story behind it, um, which can then potentially be recovered. Mm. or can can lead to something else in the future but there's a sense of like places having a history that is still the history is still hanging around somehow in the spirit mm. of the place yeah i mean maybe this brings me back to, brings us back to you know how places can have these atmospheres i'm just wondering you know maybe this is a perhaps an entry point to sort of talk about um folk horror Mm. And you're interested in like how people have used art, how people have used like film and 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 TV in very particular ways to to explore these issues about um, like histories um, in the countryside or histories of buried histories. And and folk horror is, I mean, not not everyone will know be familiar with the term, but folk horror is one of the ways that 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 people have used to to, to explore this and I, I think it's some something that you've be, become interested in as well as a way of like understanding how these places yeah. work it's it's worth kind of unpicking my experience at Grovely yeah. a, a bit further because that that's how I went in this direction because before making films at Grovely I was I was going to be either working uh within slow cinema so lots of long takes which is a really nice way to to immerse the the viewer in a landscape or the essay film which is um sort of much more tangential lots of voiceover and go in lots of different directions um and this was going to be my approach at Grovely because it was just so full of disparate bits of information which didn't really seem to cohere very well I mean you've got this you know this this Roman road with this amazing beach avenue which was planted in the late uh, 18th century and you've got this folk tradition then you've got the the haunted beaches there's 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 a military bunker there because it was used for storing ordnance during World War to you know lots of kind of disparate 
element so i you know i thought well you know i'll i'll be able to connect these by talking thematically and giving lots of information about gravy because it's you know the more i found out the more interesting it got and so i started writing that and i started filming and i thought this is really dry yeah i mean i love essay films i've, I've made them you know they're, they're wonderful but i just thought you know this is not getting to the meat of the matter this is not communicating what I think there is to say in uh, Groveley. Um, these ideas are not connected. They're uh, they're they're linked, but they're not, they don't make kind of a whole. Um, and you know, worst of all, like this this really kind of wonderfully sinister, moody, um uh, emotional response that I was having to Groveley, who just wasn't there in the voiceover. Right. So I thought, well, I've loved horror films my whole life. I've loved, you know, I love ghost stories. I, you know, I like spooky children's stories. Um, right. So, you know, I was aware that folk horror is, is something which is very much talked about. So I thought, well, mate, and there's a folk story here. There's several, in fact. So why don't I just try using all the, the research that I'd done, but sort of housing it in a fictional setting mm. um so this is this is where Clutis came about so there's there's only one thing that is made up in Clutis, uh and that's that it imagines the uh grace reed uh the night before her trial at salisbury prison um being visited by the four hansel sisters on who's who'd been murdered so right. she visits so she visits them um, and then in her dream, she goes to visit the Groveley of 2022, which is when I was filmmaking. So this is what she oh, sees okay. on her way. She's she's talked to by 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 the four sisters, um, and um, you know they they tell her that she's going to be released and she's going to be remembered. Um, uh, and Grace Reed is sort of you know quite shocked with the changes that have taken place with Grove Lee because there's plantation woodland there and it was being filmed in the summer of 2022 so this was during this devastating heat wave so there was evidence of of fires that had burnt in the field so so you've got the Anthropocene in there as well mm. uh you know the, the heat was horrible and you know woodlands can sometimes really hold it in and this, this is one that did so, so yeah, I was like, okay, so so I can have my cake and eat it. So I can bring all this information together. I can sort of communicate this spooky thing. Um, and it really worked. And I presented it at a, at a conference at the um, Association for the Study of Literature and Environment Conference in Newcastle. Newcastle has the most amazing common. <laughs> Newcastle. Right. Newcastle Town Moor is just incredible. And that, you know, went down really well. And people really seem to like it and connect with it. One of the uh, one of the, the scholars who I met in Switzerland had been struggling to teach her American students about enclosure. Um, so she showed them this and there was like, OK, right, I can see how this is important. And that kind of got me really thinking about why this is a really useful way for thinking about place which is which has a very deep history where there's links with trauma so you know with with the enclosure of land which is understood as being traumatic there's plenty of evidence for times when it was you know during the Tudor era you had whole villages which were raised to the ground to to create deer parks this is something that happened but there's other parts of the enclosure story which are are far less cut and dried but nevertheless this is how it's perceived as being the central kind of trauma to the nation um so it's a good way to explore yeah. those kinds of ideas 
and a landscape that's been traumatized through uh through the planting of plantation woodland which is so you know unbiodiverse uh so yeah so i looked into that looked into ontology right. which i'd been interested in for a while mark fisher ideas of the weird and the eerie which is uh so the weird is 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 somewhere where something doesn't belong such as for example walking on the pebble bed heaths and then suddenly discovering like a this massive military vehicle which had been parked there because the pebble bed heaths are where the marines train um so those kind of just or the or the uh or wick Moor on the somerset coast which is which borders hinkley point right so you know ancient landscape nuclear power stations you know it's a very strange kind of juxtaposition um and then the eerie is uh either the something where there should be nothing or nothing yeah. where there should be some, something as well and then you know folk horror as well which is really really current um and is what i'm looking at at the moment in terms of actually creating a much more heavily fictionalized story so there have been two major anthologies on folk horror published this year, one by Routledge, one by pa uh, Pan Macmillan. There's a, a folk horror book on work of Thomas Hardy, also a major publisher. There's, it's, you know, there's conferences galore, several of which I've given papers at. And, and the, you know, and the 50th anniversary of the Wicker Man as well. So that's, you know, it's really pushed it into the spotlight. But it's a really good way about thinking about place because a good folk horror should be something that's quite um where the horror is something that's quite difficult to identify it's something which is um it's uh you know in in the scooby-doo story where the you know the, the villain is the, the ghost is unmasked as being a villain well with a folk horror you never get that you never really work out what the story is um there's just a, a sense of there's kind of a presence or an agency often something that comes from the land so it's very useful for talking about ecological issues um and um and yeah so so i'm looking at using all the material that i've found out on the pebble bed heath and creating some kind of folk horror based on that so folk horror having this kind of connection like it, to distinguish it from from kind of regular horror or, or from other kind of horrors having these folkloric elements um but also having having a sense of yeah there's a particular place that the thing is associated with a particular place and it may, it may be likened to kind of the deep time or something ancient not always but um i mean the wicker man not necessarily but all but in i mean as as i understand it in the wicker man people there are trying to connect to something they're trying to connect to something old even though what they're doing is 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 something that's been been kind of introduced in the in the modern era but they're trying to kind of talk to something in the landscape that's like a pre-christian um like a, a very very ancient um some something spiritual within the land that they're trying to connect with um so it yeah <laughs> yeah so it's real for them yeah. i mean they've created it so it so it is real even though it's been invented for capitalist gain, I mean, it, it's it's a. I mean, I think it's such a complicated film to unpick in terms of power and agency and tradition. But it's real because they. This is the lifestyle, and that you know, they. I'm not going to spoil the ending for any lucky people who've never seen The Wicker Man. Um, but it, but it becomes real. Um, 
uh, there's this idea of conjuring that you often get in folk horror. Sometimes it's it's the spirit of something in a kind of a more sociological sense, sometimes in a more uh, supernatural sense, but fundamentally it's the same kind of thing. I mean, there's there's sort of certain things which come to play in folk horrors. You, you often have the idea of an isolated community. Um, and that need, need, it, usually it's rural, but it needn't necessarily be rural. It could be either isolated physically or it could be social and economically. So, so the Candyman films are considered folk horrors for exactly this reason, because they have this sense of deep time. If you've not seen them, the amazing films. It's, it's set on um, uh, an American housing project in Chicago called Cabrini Green. So the, the people who live there are dominantly black community who are social socioeconomically isolated um, from, 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 a, from a city that is on the up around them. Um, so and, and they have this kind of folklore around this character called the Candyman. So it can exist in quite a different setting. And the more folklore has grown as it uh, as an awareness, I it it's its relevance to other different uh cultures has is becoming more and more clear. Um but place is always really, really important. Um I mean haunting, the word haunting itself, haunt, has got the same etymology as home. You know, a haunting is a place. You know, when when you when you talk about my old haunts, you say, you know, I'm going back to my old haunts, the place that I'm familiar with. You're actually using haunt in its really old sense, which is somewhere that you're habituated to rather than somewhere that's haunted. Um, so, and it's it's somewhere that's that's very much a place. Um, Folklore is also really good at, at looking for the clash between modernity and tradition as well, which is really important with with uh, with anything to do with land. But also, you know, moral ambiguity, uh, which is one of the things that I really like about it. So you quite often have uh, a character going into a folk horror who might seem quite enlightened. They might seem like the good guy, encounters all these weird kind of these weird villagers who seem murderous and mad. But actually, at the end of it, you kind of, as as with the Wicker Man, for example, you realise that the, the character that's being portrayed has, is kind of monstrous in their own way. Um, so there's this, you know, there's more, you know, and even the, the villagers who might appear to be monstrous, there's a virtue in who they are. Um, there's a reason that they are who they are. And there's very good reasons for them being like that. Yeah. In a sense, yeah, you don't, you, it, it's not, it doesn't oblige you to be, kind of be on their side yeah but you through watching the film you become you realize sort of what makes it seductive or what makes yeah. it attractive yeah it sort of takes you out of yourself a little bit um yeah i think i mean i i did also want to talk about pendus fen which mm. is a a film that maybe not that many people would have come across mm. but it's um, almost impossible to find on streaming services. You really, yeah. you really, really have to look to find it. You're best off buying a Blu-ray. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's difficult to track down. But it's you know, and it's it is a folk horror, um, but not in the way that The Wicker Man is a folk horror. Um, it, so this is a film. This is a TV uh, film that came out in the 1970s yeah. on on British TV, and it was a, it was in a in a series called Play Play for Today. And it's um, yeah, it's like a one episode, but like an extended length episode. Mm. So it's feature length. It's it's ninety minutes. 
yeah. and you know this was on mainstream tv it was on it was on mm -hmm. bbc2 on a saturday evening or something like this and it's about the most challenging tv you'll ever come across in your life it's it's so mm -hmm. rich there's so much to take in there's so many ideas um it changes so rapidly um and it it you know it it's really ahead of its time for me it 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 queers the landscape it re before that was even sort of considered to be a thing. Um, it, you know, it really talks about the slipperiness of identity and um, it kind of, some of the, you know, some of the, there's, there's this speech at the end of it, which is just incredibly good, which, which became really important as part of punk apparently. Um, right. Because it's, it's basically saying, uh, you know, that you're mixed. We're all mixed. We're neither good nor bad. We're, we're not pure. We're mud and flame. We're earth and fire. And it's, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. Man and woman. Yeah. Neither man nor woman. Yeah. Or mixed. Both or, yeah. My, mixed. My, my races are mixed because, uh, you know, yeah. the, 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 who's the center of this discovers that he's adopted. Um, mm. And it's, it's just extraordinary. And loads of it's filmed on common land. And that's totally coincidental. But nevertheless, for me, that's that's quite exciting, um, yeah. Because a lot of it's filmed in the Mulvans, um, right. which are you know it's a huge area of common land, um, and you know and talk about ancient because it's it's the oldest uh, it's the oldest rock in Britain, I think certainly in England. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a fascinating film, and it yeah, it, I recommend it, anybody to 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 check it out really, and it, mm. it 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 brings it or or at least read about it, and there are you know there have been sort of essays and reviews written about mm. it, um, and it yeah it really brings in you know a lot of like there's there's kind of um ancient history in there, um, but there's also you know it also speaks to quite modern concerns, mm. and you know it, it brings in like layers and layers of history through the eyes of this um young man who's just kind of discovering himself but yeah there's there's so much going on in there but yeah it's an interesting way of and use and, and sort of using these horrific elements or these strange and spooky elements in a way to 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 talk about you know people's also people's claims to the land yeah and the way that the land is being so in the story the land is being developed for like some kind of slightly secretive military purpose which no one really knows about mm. and there's various campaigns against it so there's a kind of like quite a modern recognizable mm. um sort of eco yeah um campaign um about you know what the land is being used for but then in, mixed into this is all this like old older history um and this young man at the center of it all so it's uh yeah it's it's an interesting thing and i think it possibly only could have been made in england um but yeah we had this worth, amazing worth period out. of tv in this country in the early 70s mm. when there was just so much experimentation um that you know really mainstream slots would have the most experimental works um there's uh so this 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 period produced some of the great folk horror as well so ghost stories for christmas which were adaptations of mr james's ghost stories a kind of foundational ghost uh folk horror texts as well so it's uh and also i mean this this kind of plays into ideas of the hauntological which is this idea that um we're haunted by the future that never quite arrived or the future that we were promised 
so the 70s were you know they they were sort of the tail end of the the the, the 60s idealism this is when the you know the, the communes were starting to decline it was uh you know punk was just kind of waiting to happen really to to level the playing field and start things again but it, and it's also the beginning of the end of the the social the post-war social consensus so you're just a few years away from Thatcher and neoliberalism and you know the the the, the privatization of everything so it's uh you know one of the reasons that it's interesting to go back to these 1970s is these are kind of the dying moments when you can sort of see that this future which had been promised certainly since the post-war era was really starting to hit the you know hit hit the rails um come off the rails rather so you've you've got these ideas of of sort of utopia and uh which are kind of there in in looking at a particular piece that's also really relevant when you're thinking about commons because there's this sort of utopian idea associated with commons but uh, that goes back especially to to the civil war um that there was this kind of golden era where we all owned the commons kind of together which is not the case because because commons were local places there was no kind of national ownership of these places and most of them were owned by lords of the manor anyway they weren't owned by local people you know by, by the general general people so but nevertheless sort of within the idea of commons and this is one of the things that i found really beneficial to me growing up is this idea that they kind of promise a, a better way of living which you know if only we could reclaim it could be ours and that's very much inherent with commons thinking um, and it's still there when, when you're thinking about sort of ideas of commoning, which and it was very interesting hearing the uh, hearing the um, the hosts on the summer school, you know, talk about this. This is sort of something which they really didn't like because they're, you know, they're economists and they're historians and this is not actually part of the history of the commons at all. Um, but it nevertheless offers a very uh, interesting way out of some of the problems which we face right now. Um, in a sort of ever privatized, ever more limited sort of social um, and ecological sphere. Um, so it's it's been really interesting learning a bit more about sort of the commons thinkers like Eleanor Ostrom, for example, who I've got lots of time for. I think her work is incredible. So it's it's really interesting to kind of know this, but also to explore these sort of social myths that we have about commons being for all um, this kind of lost anglo-saxon utopia where you know we were all freemen on the commons um yeah yeah and i, I think it, and, and also maybe not to get hung up on commons as things that you could we can pin down mm. but to understand people's relationships to places and natures as being things that can change over time right and so you know you can look you can also look back at the past and look back at kind of how things have how uh, tiny or big revolutions have happened or mm. or things have transformed really radically over over time and and maybe you know that the future is is more uh more uncertain than than you might think things are not maybe pinned mm. down as much as we might want to want to think it's a thing that's been returned to again and again and again and so many thinkers have have talked about commons both for and against i mean marx talked extensively about commons you you know a lot, a lot of the kind of, of early 18th century uh 
economists, philosophers talked about the commons in a very disparaging way. And one of the things that drove the enclosures wasn't so much economic as ideological. Um, you know, the idea that the individual striving and individual hard labor is is the thing which will drive you know a better future and the commons were seen as an obstacle to this the places of indolence and truculence um so you know it's you know the, these are really these are really ideologically rich places and they're also highly idiosyncratic i think it's really difficult to generalize between them they all have very very distinct histories because they're local places um um yeah amazing but well i i I, I could talk about this for hours um it's difficult to know where to stop mm. but um i think there's so much going on here and i think it, um you also have you were also mentioned that you have um some plans to go and explore some new places as well i'm always looking um, for new places to explore yeah. <laughs> um, so if anyone knows of interesting commons and interesting uh spots please get in touch with andy and um mm. yeah i will i'll try and add some links to various interesting uh things that we touched upon mm. in the show notes as well um but yeah thank you so much andy uh, that was that was really really fascinating conversation and um yeah all the best with your thank you thank your you. studies and your your next uh movements around the the strange places of England. Yes. <laughs> I hope it never stops. There's there. I've got so much more work still to do. <laughs> Fantastic. All Thanks right. very Thanks much for inviting me. Thank you.